Welcome to Behind the Brands. So, you found us. <laughs> well done, you. Our little podcast all about the fashion industry. Let me just tell you about the host and the creator of this podcast. The guy's from the UK and his name is Warren Parker Mills. Warren's literally worked with some of the best people in the business and met some incredible brands along the way. Now he feels it's time to kind of do things a little differently. He'll be catching up with amazing storytellers from across the globe as they share some of those unwritten secrets that they've managed to figure out for themselves. From brands you'll recognize to small artisan creators that have mastered their craft. You'll hear about their collections, sales, and their ongoing quest for sustainability. So if you're an aspiring designer, an influencer, or just a massive fan of listening to fascinating conversation, stay right where you are. Hey, welcome to episode number 15 of Behind the Brands podcast. Uh, good to have you with us. Thank you guys for all the direct messages about the Burbo Couture episode. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. It's lovely to get your messages, so I really do appreciate that. And today we've got another treat for you. So in today's show, I caught up with an amazing storyteller, Sarah Renison Gwyn Harris from the brand Reclaim in Mallorca. And Sarah gives us the full lowdown of basically how she ended up in Mallorca, what she's up to with her beautiful brand, and also her global objectives. Trust me, it's an amazing show. So enjoy this one, and I will see you on the other side. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Are you good? I'm very well, thank you, Warren. So lovely to be here with you on this yeah, it's- in Mallorca. Oh, fabulous. Absolutely. We're going to talk all about where you are in the world. So that's all cool. But first of all, I just wanted to say thanks for joining me. Um, We kind of met in a very strange place, really, didn't we? We met on Clubhouse, which is an unusual for anyone that's listening to the podcast that doesn't know what we're talking about here. So Clubhouse is a new online platform. And if you are a brand or you want to take your business to market, it's definitely the place to be full of amazing contacts, brilliant networking. And um, yeah, you kind of stumble across middle-aged balding guys from the UK that you want to talk to. So um, how have you found it? How have you found um, how have you found the platform? I absolutely love Clubhouse. I think it's such a brilliant concept. And the guys that invented it, wow. I mean, seriously, what I, the thing that I love about it the most is the, the possibility to put so many different people from so many different walks of life and geographical backgrounds into the same room and they can all talk to each other. That wouldn't happen on a, in normal life on the street. Like yeah. you wouldn't have Prince Charles's right hand man talking to a rapper from Brixton. I love it. I think it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. It breaks yeah. down all kinds of social barriers that have always been there. So I think it's I think it's wonderful. Do you know what? You're talking about Prince Charles's right-hand man. Again, I know exactly who you're talking about, you know, and that's the wonderful exactly. thing about Clubhouse. Never met John, ever. However, no. I feel as if I know him, you know. It's it's yeah. just an amazing, amazing platform. And, you know, you were really yeah. kind and you stepped up into one of my rooms and we we were talking. I, I host a room, as you know, and you kind of came up and my my little spidey senses kind of thought, hold on a minute. We got someone <laughs> here really does know her stuff. Not only know your stuff, but I think you've got a few stories to tell us so that's why we're here today so do you want to tell us a little bit about you Sarah and what put you in that wonderful part of the world and 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 how you got there sure yeah so my name is Sarah Renison Gwyn Harris and I'm the founder and creative director of the sustainable luxury brand Reclaim Mallorca I grew up in Wales in a very remote area of the Brecon Beacons National Park 
to a father who was essentially Prince Charles, which is why I was bringing back his reference, um, mm -hmm. you know, with, with his take on, on sustainability in the environment. He was preaching. I say preaching. He was actually lecturing. But <laughs> to us, it always felt like he was preaching. So he would go around the world giving lectures on agriculture's impact on the environment. So to grow up in, in that kind of a place, it was already like from the minute I was born, the minute I could talk, I had my father bombarding me with stories about phosphates in carrots and <laughs> CO2 and, and the ozone layer. And, you know, so I guess in a way, that's why I am where I am today. Yeah. So I can, I can really thank him for that. He, I mean, he would make us like every Saturday we would go. We lived in, in as I said, in the middle of the Brecon Beacons National Park on my grandmother's estate. And we had all of these bridle paths and hiking trails that crossed over our land. And so every Saturday he would make us go with a bin bag and pick up all the rubbish that people had thrown onto our land from these paths. And at the time I hated him for this. I was like, why are we doing this? Well, I'm not a rubbish man. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is to teach you about the importance of conserving nature. And yeah. he was so right. And he literally gave me the grounding for, for the work I do today. So now I, I'm really super grateful for that. Wow. It's amazing. I mean, when you, you know, I know we spoke previously and you told me a little bit about your dad and, and everything he stood for and, and how it kind of impacted you growing up mm. and more so now as you've kind of found your calling and, you know, yeah. you have an amazing story and I know this is all about your brand and what you're doing <laughs> with that, but you know, we must also touch on some of the other stuff that you're doing because it is just, oh. you, you, you know, you blew me away when we spoke the other day, I was like, what, you know, it's, <laughs> you're just doing some amazing stuff stuff and I, I really want to kind of dig into that so so with regards to um with your your brand then so I mean yeah. you're in you're in Mallorca and mm -hmm. um how did you get there what what's the story <laughs> how, how did you oh get there's there? always a story nothing nothing's ever <laughs> nothing's ever boring in my life um Go on. So, so basically my brother was in the Caribbean with a bunch of friends and they had this little 70-foot sailing boat and their plan was to bring it back to Mallorca mm -hmm. Uh, and they basically had no one to cook for them. So they're like, oh, well, who do we know that's a good cook? And my brother's like, oh, my sister, my sister will be so good. Let's get her to come. So they talked me into this idea of like packing up my entire life in London. I literally did this in the space of two days, put everything in boxes, locked mm -hmm. up my apartment, took the next available flight to St. Thomas and ended up sailing across the Atlantic on this little 70 foot boat with my brother and four of his friends and cooking for them the whole way across. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, the stupidest thing we did on this adventure was the night before we left, we were in St. Thomas in the US Virgin Islands, and my brother's like, why don't we go to the cinema before we leave? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds nice. And a nice chilled evening before we set off at 6 a.m. Great, yeah. He only took us to see Titanic. Oh, my like, God. Really? <laughs> of all the freaking films we could have yeah. gone to see, and, and you choose Titanic. Yeah, thanks, Jay. That's really, really smart. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so you set off. Where where did you go off. from there? Where where where, where did we you set end off. up? We went from the Virgin Islands, stopped off in the Canary Islands, and then came to Mallorca. Mm -hmm. So that was like three long weeks at sea, and we finally finally make it back here to Mallorca. And of course, like mm -hmm. so many others before me, I fell completely in love with the island and really didn't want to go back to London. But at the time, I was working on a music magazine concept for a very dear friend of mine, Carl Cox, who luckily for me had a house in Mallorca already. So he completely understood why mm -hmm. I fell so in love with, with the island and didn't want to stay in London. He's like, all right, yeah. no problem. Yeah, I'll let yeah. you go. Off you go. So that was that was very, very blessed. Mm -hmm. And did Carl have a place in Mallorca or, or not? He did. Yeah. yeah. He sold it a few years ago now, but he did. He had a place here in Santa Ponza. Okay. 
Okay. Because mm-hmm. I, I used to do some work with Pasha in Ibiza. So um, obviously, so I, know I, yeah. well, I don't know him, but I know, I know a lot of the, I know a guy called Danny Whittle that probably worked with, with Carl and he worked with all the DJs and everything else. Yeah. But that's a different podcast, Sarah. That's yeah, a that completely different podcast. podcast. <laughs> so it's many, not about like me. It's about you. <laughs> 15 lives in one here. I, I know. I know. <laughs> so, so you got to this wonderful destination. You fell in love with the place. And, um, did you think, right, I'm here, I'm settled, the sun is shining, I'm going to create an accessories range? Did you think <laughs> that or not? There were quite a few, there were quite a few things that happened before that because that was okay. back in that was back in nineteen ninety-nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nineteen ninety-nine, two thousand. So I was working here for a while in a for a concierge company. So I was basically just like solving absolutely ridiculous and impossible requests for yacht owners so they would come and they'd be like oh you know today it's russian independence day and we need to have a fireworks display in the bay of Palma in two hours and i'm like what <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, really? we need a license for that how, how how are you expecting to pull that off in two hours and they just pull out wads of cash you'd be like go fix it fix it <laughs> so, so, so i would like i had my lawyer on speed dial during this this time and i'd be like hey so pedro what happens if i just like set off a fireworks display what's going to happen it's like you're going to get a massive fine it'll be about three thousand euros and i'm looking at the pile of cash i have in my hand which is about ten thousand euros I'm like okay then we can we can make that work that'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> well, so these were super rich people just wanting oh to my play God. Yeah. yeah 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 and so i would like get these crazy stunts and pull off these ridiculous things in absolutely mm-hmm. no time whatsoever. same russian clients on a sunday afternoon their private jet broke down and they're like you know, Sunday, Mallorca, it's a Catholic country. Everything's closed. Yeah. Uh, where the hell? We have to leave for Russia in half an hour. And I'm like, fucking hell. Excuse me, I'm swear. <laughs> How on earth am I going to pull that off? And so I was like, mm. going through my phone, right? Who do I know who has a private jet? I'm having a friend here, Bruno, who's got one. So I'm like, Bruno, do you want to make a big stack of cash? He's like, what are you, what are you, what are you suggesting? Like, do you fancy lending your jet to some Russian clients of mine? Yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. So that those are the kinds of crazy wow. things that I was doing, which is very, very uh, fast-paced and extremely stressful. Yeah. So at some point, I was like, you know what? I really don't want to be doing this anymore. I'd rather yeah. be a little bit more in line with the way I actually believe, which is mm-hmm. sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, um, I actually went and volunteered as a project manager on an ecotourism project in Vietnam. And after right. four months on this project, I got really, really ill with heavy metal poisoning and I had to come back to Europe and I had to be in treatment for like a year. Mm-hmm. And, and my doctors had told me, right, well, during this time, you've got to minimize your stress levels. You've got to have a super strict routine. You can't mm-hmm. go anywhere, do anything. You've just got to sit still. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is, you know, I've been flying around the world for years. I didn't really know how to sit still. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, right, well, I've got to have something that's going to keep my brain at least active during this time. So that's where I came up with the concept. And um, just going back a little bit, this was early 2009. And at this point, I was living in a neighborhood here in Palma called Santa Catalina. And over the, over the years of living in this neighborhood, neighborhood, I'd become great friends with this incredible Mayakian saddle maker called Pep Rog. Mm-hmm. And whenever I was feeling a little bit homesick and I wanted to go be reminded of, the, of horses and the smell of home, I would go and sit in his workshop and talk to him for hours. So one day now in 2009, I'm visiting him and I find him so, so sad. And I'm like, Pep, what on earth is the matter with you? Mm-hmm. And of course, this is the middle of the financial crisis, and he was having major problems with, with 
cash flow and he was seriously considering selling his horse. And this is a horse that he's raised from a foal. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. There's got to be a way out of this situation. So I left his workshop with a super heavy heart and I'm like, I've got, I've got to help him. I've got to find a way to solve this. And that night, in the middle of the night, like four o'clock in the morning, I wake up bolt, bolt upright, like a eureka moment. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. his horse tech, he's got in this little workshop, he's got like, I don't know, three tons of just discarded, trashed horse tech. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, there's got to be something we can do with this. And I, I'm, I'm in a, like a studio apartment with this massive mezzanine. And I look over the edge and I look down. And behind my sofa, I've got piles and piles and piles of antique fabric that I've been collecting over the years. So the point where I actually had to move house because my apartment was so full of fabric. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take his old leather. We're going to take my antique fabric and we're going to put it together. And we're going to make a bag. Okay. Oh, yes. This is what we're going to do. We're going to sell these bags and we're going to make a fortune. And I'm like, you know, I'm four o'clock in the morning. Everything seems like such a great idea. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the next day, I get up, I go rushing over to his studio, super excited to tell him about this. And I could not, for the love of God, convince him that this was a good plan. And we almost had a fight. He's like, no, I don't want to do this. If you think it's such a great idea, why don't you do it? And I'm such a defiant and stubborn person that I'm like, okay, fine, I will. And that's, that's basically how Reclaim was born. Wow. So, that's amazing. So yeah. Is he still around, this guy? This he is, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still here. We actually yeah. did, there was a, a magazine here that did like a four-page spread on the brand a few years ago, and they came and interviewed me in his workshop and took photographs of the whole thing. He's got like this, he's such a funny little character. He's passionate about um, Red Indians. So he's got like all over his walls, he's got these posters of all these famous Red Indians and all these shoes and headdresses, and wow. he's hilarious. Sounds Absolutely. great. Sounds such a character. So yeah. you um, so you pulled together the range then, Um well, I mean, was it a range? Was it was it that well, was it that through? I mean, oh God, no! In the beginning, back in two thousand and nine, when I started, it was just like a hobby brand. Mm. So I would literally just be—I would go to his workshop after I'd finished. I was working in a store at the time in Santa Catalina, and I would go into his workshop at like seven o'clock in the evening and sit there for like three hours sewing in the freezing cold by hand and make these bags. Sometimes it would take me like three weeks to make a bag. That's yeah. how you know. That's how it started, and then over time. I realized actually, you know, we need to do more with this. Like we could really mm -hmm. turn this into like a proper brand. So in 2013, this was after I'd, I'd gone off to work for somebody else for a couple of years. And in 2013, I came back to the idea of Reclaim. I'm like, you know what, now is the time to really turn this into a brand. So that's when I launched, you know, I actually set up a company and I got a studio and I actually went about launching it properly as a brand and developing a range of bags. And, and that's when it really... I say I would say it blossomed because, of course, in the beginning, I was using like old military sacks and random bits of fabric that were mm -hmm. from all over the place. And then when I started really turning it into a brand, I was like, right, well, now we've got to get like some serious suppliers. So I started working with a lot of antique dealers who would be traveling around Europe with uh, furniture and artwork. Yeah. And at the same time, when they were going to these amazing properties, they would find all these incredible fabrics. So I was like, okay, well, you know, these fabrics that you're finding, if you just like put them all to one side and I'll buy them from you. Mm -hmm. So that's where the antique, like what's, that's where like a, a main supplier of the antiques fabrics started to come from. And then it, the brand just grew and grew and grew. And I realized, God, we're going to need more fabric. So then I started talking to people like 
La Rusmiani in Milan about their production surplus because these guys are producing like a couple of million meters of fabric every year and they end up with like two, three hundred thousand meters of surplus, which blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. So this is this lovely little family-run Italian company and they brought me into their headquarters in Milan and they showed me their surplus fabric storage. And I mean, it was like a 10-story apartment building. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Wow, yeah. They had these like robotic arms. You'd put in this little code, like it had all the, like a computerized um, index of all of the fabrics they had. And you, you'd enter the code and this robot yeah. would move through this 10-story building and pull out these rolls of fabric. And I'm like, how on earth yeah. do you have so much? And they said, well, you know, because it's a family-run business, so we never wanted to throw anything away. So there was like, 40 years or 50 years of accumulated fabric in this place. So I was wow. like in heaven. Yeah. My tre yeah. treasure trove. Yeah. So I, I bought like 400 meters from them of various different fabrics. And every year I've gone back and bought more. Yeah. Yeah. So mixing that. So I mix their fabrics then with the antique fabrics that come from the dealers and then yeah. all with recycled horse tech. Because okay. my, my family also all breed horses. So there's right. an okay. endless supply of tech coming in. And all and all the production is is done locally. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're all we um we took over two years ago. We took over a nineteenth century, early nineteenth century shoe factory. Mayoko mm -hmm. back in the day was very famous for the production of leather goods, mainly shoes. And so there was this factory that had been closed for like forty years. The roof falling in, birds living inside. Total disaster of a place. But the first day I walked in there. I didn't see any of that. I didn't see the roof falling in. I didn't see anything. All I saw were these huge windows and this absolutely incredible light. And I'm like, this has to be my studio. I don't care what it takes. This has to be my studio. So then we spent like seven months renovating it to get it to, to be habitable again and moved in. And it'll be two years ago now in March, end of, end wow. of March. So and, that's and in, the early, in the early days, Sarah, how did you, um, again, how did you kind of, you know, when you're starting a new brand and you've got great products and, you know, going out and just buying, you know, wonderful, wonderful fabric has a cost and everything else. Yeah, and a course. new studio has a cost and everything else. How did you manage to kind of balance it all financially? Well, it was tough in the beginning. Don't get me wrong. Like any startup, you know, we went through our absolutely dire moments of trying to decide whether we should put gas in the car or food on the table. It was really like mm. it was it was a tough, tough journey. But in some ways, we were super, super blessed because we had, like, straight out of the gates, before we'd even done a website, mm -hmm. we had the Financial Times approach us and asked to do an article on Reclaim. And we're like, well, first of all, how on earth did you hear about us? Because at this point, we were a super, super small little brand just with mm -hmm. a handful of customers. And um, it turns out that one of the, I think it was the founder of the Financial Times' wife bought a house in Mallorca. And the guy mm -hmm. who was renovating her house is a very good friend of mine, and he mentioned the brand to her. So we were, I mean... <laughs> Serendipity, kicking so, in, yeah. So lucky. So yeah. they were, I mean, they were incredible. They gave us three full weeks of coverage all across the, the physical paper, How to Spend It magazine. We mm -hmm. had a full full page digitally, like headline, four weeks of just constant coverage. And from that, yeah. they literally launched our brand. I mean, we... Wow. And, and not only that, they waited for an entire year for us to get a website going before they published the story. They wow. were they were just brilliant. And yeah. um, we literally, we did 15,000 euros worth of sales overnight just from wow. that coverage. Amazing. On, online I mean, sales. 
that's incredible. I mean, you can't, I mean, obviously you can pay for that kind of coverage, but when it's organic <laughs> like that, it's, um, it's so oh. much more rewarding, isn't it? You know, and it as I, as I look at, as I, as I look at your product, and I go on your website and I look at your Instagram, it looks so traditional. It would be difficult to think that, you know, a young girl from Wales kind of created it all and pulled it all together. Is that, you know, the look and the aesthetics and everything else that you do styling wise, who does yeah. that? Are you doing the art um, kind of yeah. curation there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm fully creative. Anything to do with the brand's physical image, it, it's all me. I'm I'm yeah. I'm running um the whole of the design team. I'm running all of the social media output, all of the the shoots, everything. All of the creative is is me. Yeah. And what about inspiration then? Where do you kind of look towards with regards to the range? Well, you know, I live in Mallorca, so I mean, just a nature. I spend so much of my time in nature and I pull a lot of the ideas for my color combinations from things that I see in nature, plants, combinations of plants and flowers mm -hmm. and textures and tones and well that. And then also, you know, now over the years, I've accumulated an insane amount of fabric. I've got one whole wall. My studio is a 400 meter square meter studio and one entire wall is dedicated to fabric. So wow. we've got this insanely huge purpose built wooden cupboard with these giant sliding doors and all of our fabrics are sorted in colors so it goes like all the way through the rainbow all the different textures and patterns and everything but all with color so when I start designing a new collection the first thing I do is just go to that wall of fabric and I just start pulling fabrics and I mm -hmm. see I mean I struggle to stop honestly because there's so much fabric and so many combinations and I'm, I could literally just design all day long because my head just constantly sees combinations <laughs> oh my god I could just visualize this wall of color you've described it so beautifully I can just imagine what it looks like I bet it's awesome oh, it's um, and like with regard, I bet yeah I, with regards to kind of the styles that you've done is there any particular pieces or was there any particular bag that really signifies your brand as such I mean is there any signature brand uh, pieces um I suppose the Orient tote that's that that was really the first commercial product that we made mm -hmm. and that was the one that we had like before we really started producing we had a waiting list for it people were already like I'd made two or three of them and I was putting them in the shop that I was working in when I was sick and told to do nothing and um, and that was the bag that really, that was the one that everybody was just pushing for all the time. It's a, it's a reversible shopper style tote. Yeah. And um, you know the thing with our bags is that because we're always using antique fabric, and we always just got like small pieces. It's not like apart from the stuff we buy from like La Rousmani, the small antique fabric comes in like maybe you get a meter, two meters, mm -hmm. half a meter. So every single bag that we make is a completely unique one-off piece. You are yeah. literally the only person in the world that will carry that bag. Wow. So I wow. think that that's a lot of the appeal. And we've got clients that literally, like, no joke, they fight each other. When the new collection comes out, they're, like, fighting over who's <laughs> going to get the best bags from the collection. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what have I created? Yeah, create a monster. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I suppose that goes internationally. I mean, what kind of territory is where, – where is the brand being best received, would you say, outside of Mallorca? Um. Actually, it, more than Mallorca, uh, the majority of our clients come from like the north of Europe, like Scandinavian countries, mm -hmm. Norway, mm -hmm. Finland, Sweden, um, Germany, a lot of clients in Germany, because these are all countries that are fully vast in sustainability and have been yeah. for many, many years. Yeah. The south of Europe is still kind of catching up a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. So where, whereas in Spain, people will say to me, why would I pay that much for one of your bags when I could get a Vuitton? And I'm like, yeah, you're not really grasping the concept. If you think mm-hmm. that a Vuitton is better than what we're doing, then honestly, you're not our customer. Yeah. Because obviously a bag that a bag that we make you literally will be the only one that carries it. If you buy a Vuitton, you will be you and 5,000 others that will have the exact same bag. Yeah. And that's that's a concept that the Spanish are still struggling to grasp. So our client base in Spain is honestly mainly international people that are either based here or traveling here or have holiday homes here. And that's where the majority of our local clients come from. Yeah. But um, um, and with and with regards to kind of scaling the business, what what are, what's 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 happening in the future for the brand? How are you going to scale it? Out? <laughs> we have a plan. <laughs> it is official. You heard it here first, <laughs> listeners. Stick with me. She's going <laughs> to yeah. spill the beans. Go on. Yes, a couple of years ago, I had this brilliant American guy come join my team called Brian Goodry, and he's had thirty years in fashion, but he was working for the darker side of fashion, the fast fashion brands like Mango. He did 10 years in Mango as global sourcing director. So um, he exactly, that's what he said. He's like, Sarah, you know, I love what you're doing. Your brand is fantastic. But, and of course, there's always a but, Mm -hmm. how are you going to bring this to a bigger audience? How are you going to scale this brand up? Because I'd always told everybody that comes on board with my brand, you know, my, my plan is to build this brand to a global household name like 20 million annual turnover and then sell out to someone like Keering or LVMH. And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. But how are you going to do that? And of course, Brian was the one who fully answered this question because yes, it's all very well and good making one of a kind bags, but that in itself is not particularly scalable. So he said, listen, you need to meet these friends of mine. And he's got these, these guys he went to university with from California and they're working in Haiti, Honduras, and Taiwan with undervalued communities creating an, an a sustainable income for these communities whilst transforming their concept of waste. So what they get these guys to do is they have them picking up all the trash from the streets. So this is trash that never makes it to landfill, doesn't end up in the ocean. It gets caught before it gets to the dangerous stage. Mm. They then break that down into these tiny little pellets. They weave that into a thread. And from that thread, they make literally a waxed canvas. And you look at this and you're like, how is that even possible? How are they turning trash into wax canvas? But amazingly, they are. And we've mm-hmm. been blessed to be able to work with this because, of course, this is a company that are working with like Ralph Lauren and Timberland. Wouldn't even look at a brand like ours normally. But because Brian went to university with them, he was like, hey, I need a favor. So they've been super, super kind to let us start working with their fabrics. So this year, or well, end of last year, We've released our first fully scalable, sustainable waxed canvas collection. So it's all wow. made with this, this wonderful upcycled wax canvas. And mm-hmm. our idea with that collection is we've rolled out four, four basic models. So these will always be in stock. You can buy these all year round. But then mm-hmm. every year, we haven't decided whether we're going to do once or twice a year yet, we'll bring out a new collection with a different color of the fabric. And every now and again, we'll do a limited edition drop where we take some production surplus fabric that we have maybe 40, 50 meters of, and we will do a limited edition collection within the wax canvas collection, combining the wax canvas with a production surplus fabric. And of course, this opens up so many possibilities. We've already started talking. I can't say the name of the brand yet, but Mm -hmm. we're in talks with a massive brand in the US to do a collection for them along these lines. So we'll take their... Um, production surplus from the making of their garments 
and we'll use that with this wax canvas to create a collection of bags exclusively for them because it's their fabrics. Yeah. These are the kinds of collaborations we'll be able to do in the future. With We'll be able to go to any other brand, take their, their production surplus and create a line of bags combined with our wax canvas that will be exclusively theirs. That's a great idea. What I love about that is you're not deferring you're not you're not moving away from your your values and what you're about you know you're literally just keeping those values really really strong and just Mm. solving a problem for someone else along the way you know so it's a win-win for both parties isn't it and Mm. the customer the consumer gets gets new product they've never seen before so exactly that's amazing and and bringing sustainability to much larger brands that are struggling because of course yeah it's very easy to attack large brands and be like oh you know they need to be sustainable but it's like it's going back to the Titanic. It's like a mm-hmm. huge ocean liner that's going mm-hmm. full steam in one direction. And to turn that around, yeah. it's not an overnight process for them. It's yeah. much easier for the smaller brands like us because we're li- nimble and light on our feet and we can shift with the changes of ideas and the changes of time. And they can't. Yeah, I remember this very clearly from a few years ago when I had the architect from McDonald's staying at my house here in Mallorca. And she was telling me, you know, McDonald's, at McDonald's, we're actually doing we're taking huge strides in sustainability, but we're not talking about it or telling anyone about it because people are so quick to criticize us. And no matter what we do, people will tell us, oh, no, you're not doing enough. But this was like was going back seven or eight years ago now. And at the time, they were trying to get a they were trying to get sustainable beef into their supply chain. And when mm-hmm. you think of that, applying that to fashion, you know, it's basically the same thing. Like you take a massive juggernaut like H&M or Zara for them to make a small shift like that. It's a huge huge deal just to be able to find like mcdonald's was saying you know we want to use sustainable beef but with the amount of beef we use on a daily basis we literally can't find enough there's no one out there making enough beef to meet our demand that's sustainable yeah yeah Yeah, it's not as if they can do it in selective restaurants is it do you know what i mean i mean a big corporate like that it has to go right across the because if they're going to if they're going to expand it and and develop the, the the idea out into their audience then again they they need to push it across the whole business you're absolutely right i have this conversation so many times mostly in clubhouse i will say but (laughs) it's um it is an interesting one because a lot of people do make the assumption that everything needs to happen tomorrow and as much as there is an urgency which i again i want to talk to you about that because i I know you've got plenty to say on that subject (laughs) but i know there is an urgency but we have got to try and do as much as we can, as quickly as we can, you know, and yeah, we've just got to sure. be an understanding of that. So for sure, but we've also got to appreciate that these big brands are going to take time. And the beauty of the kind of collections that Reclaim can produce for them is mm-hmm. we give them we give them an opening into the way of sustainable production. We show them, hey, this is how we do it. We're going to take your fabrics, we're going to create something for you, and we'll show you how we do it. So mm-hmm. if you want to if you want to apply those production processes into your larger collections, then you get a chance to try it out first here with us. So I think that's a very important part of the process for them as well. It's we give them an, an opening into a world that perhaps they don't know that much about. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you've got a lot going on, Sarah. It's fair to say, you know, you've got a lot going on. And what else are you up to? There's an open question. Is there anything else you want to tell us about? Well, you know, Reclaim, making sustainable fashion isn't enough for us. We, we started off doing that with, the, with this concept that, hey, fast fashion needs an overhaul. Hmm. Everybody needs to shift their, their way of thinking into a more sustainable lifestyle. But the main driving force behind starting the brand for me was the urgent need for co2 reduction 
because as I'm sure you're aware, fashion is actually, or the clothing industry is the second largest polluter in terms of an industry. Fossil fuels are the first and fashion is the second, which is so hard to imagine, but unfortunately it's true. So I'd started this idea and I had this whole plan that I was going to build up my brand. I was going to sell out to LVMH or somebody similar. And then I was going to launch the Reforestation Foundation. But unfortunately, back in 2010, when the latest IPCC report came out, the, the time frame that I'd given myself was no longer an option. Because we actually, as a human race, we passed the tipping point on CO2 emissions in 2009, which means, to break it down to a really simple way of, of understanding, is that if we turned off the tap tomorrow, we stopped all CO2 emissions, we still wouldn't be able to stop this path that we're on to complete breakdown with, uh, you know, they still talk about two degrees of global warming, but in reality, it's closer to 3.7 now. We've passed two, mm -hmm. two's, two's gone. So I was, of course, very stressed about this. And um, many, many years ago, while I was sailing in Tahiti, I came across this absolute character called John Stember, who was one of the original Vogue photographers. He was like in the studio with the Rolling Stones when they recorded their first album. And he's just like this total character. He's now retired and living on a boat in Tahiti. And so I would sit with him in the afternoons and be like, John, you know, what can we do? How can we shift people's mindset around sustainability? And he would say the same. He's like, you know, we've spent so much of our life working in fashion and working in advertising and promoting these ideas and getting people to get behind things. There has to be a way to turn that on its head and turn that to sustainability. So he had this brilliant friend called Graciela Chichilinski, who's, I mean, this woman, oh, my God. She wrote The Carbon Market for the Kyoto Protocol. She's this mm -hmm. juggernaut of a woman who's dev devoted her entire life to CO2. And um, along with her, her partner in this, Peter Eisenberger, who's the world's number one mathematician, they actually came up with a way to literally suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. So you solve atmospheric carbon, which is the biggest issue that we face as, as the human race right now. It's not the emissions. It's the CO2, the existing CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah. Every every single bit of fossil fuel that we've burned over the years, there is still some residue of that sitting in atmosphere. And everybody says, oh, you know, nature, trees. No, <laughs> no. Yes, reforestation is super important. I've devoted most of my life to that. That's one of the things we do at Reclaim. We have a local reforestation project here. Mm -hmm. But it's no longer enough. We, we're, we're emitting far faster than nature can keep up. So Graciela and all of her brilliance came up with this technology that allows us now to directly suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, turn it into a sellable product. So you're feeding a market that's very, very hungry for CO2, which is, you know, like Coca-Cola, IKEA, plastic mm -hmm. is made from CO2. Yeah. So they're, they're making a recyclable plastic with CO2. Greenhouses, where they're growing vast amounts of plants, need CO2. Hospitals. I mean, there's like carbon fiber. There's just this mm -hmm. huge market for it. So Graciela has literally come up with a way to now shift the entire human race away from being a fossil fuel-based economy and to turn it into a CO2-based economy. It's the carbon economy. It's the new way of being. I mean, this woman is a genius. So, of course, I'm like, okay, I need to get involved with this. <laughs> so, <laughs> As you do. As you do. So I have, I have a lovely Australian who's backing, backing my brand. Yeah, and he was he was also saying, you know, when you're ready to go into reforestation, I'll I'll join you in that as well. So I said, Rich, mm. you know what? 
We don't have any time to waste. We can't mm. wait now 10 years to build this brand and sell it. We've got to get on board with this right now. So he said, all right, Sarah, fine. If you can prove to me that this project is worthwhile, I'll put 200 million into it. So I've spent the last three years working with people like McKinsey to put together a completely broad picture of this business and to prove to investors that it's a, a viable option for investment. And that's where we're at right now. And at the moment, we're onboarding massive investment and we're making this thing into a fully scalable solution to the carbon crisis. Wow. There's a mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. You know, when we talked about it before, I kind of came off and I had to have five minutes on my own, you know, just yeah, kind of just trying to digest everything that you were saying, because, you know, this is this is big stuff. This is big, big dreams. And you have to have those dreams. You know, you have yeah. to have yeah. the you have to have the goal to to even come close to trying to get there. So it's yeah. unbelievable what you're doing. You know, my next question is, is, is <laughs> I don't know how you're going to answer it, but basically it's why do you do what you do, Sarah? Why are you doing this? You know, what makes because you get up in the morning and do it? Because it, it's what needs to be done. It's like, yeah. you know. Right now, we're at this absolute pivotal moment in history that we literally have seven years to turn this ship around. Yeah. And if we don't, you know, everyone talks about saving the planet. It's got nothing to do with saving the planet. The planet was here for millions of years before the human race. Yeah. And it'll be here for millions of years after we've gone. Mm -hmm. And what people fail to understand is if we don't solve the atmospheric CO2 issue, and again, I'm not talking about emissions Emissions and atmospheric are two very separate things. And the atmospheric CO2 problem is literally the most urgent problem that we face as a human race. If we don't solve that in the next seven years, we will literally become extinct. Yeah. And that is what drives me. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning, the fear that the human race will become extinct. And I have the possibility to be able to change that. That's what drives me. Yeah. And we've spent, you know, like I've been... For three years, I've been trying to persuade Elon Musk to get involved with this mission. And he's finally agreed to put up $100 million into the project. And the right. thing with him is it's not about the money because, of course, the money now will come from anywhere. Thankfully, we've got the Biden administration in power in the U.S. And they're fully aware that this is what needs to be done. And they're talking mm -hmm. all the time. They've got John Kerry, who's passionate about direct air capture, carbon capture. So all of that is in place. But it needs massive public opinion shift people need to realize first of all they need to wake up to the fact that hey we passed the tipping point in 2009 two degrees is gone we're on course for 3.7 and 3.7 means the extinction of the human race so first of all it's that massive wake-up call and then secondly mm -hmm. it's all right this is the problem we've all fully aware of the problem now we need to be fully on board with the solution so the likes of musk coming on board you know because he's such a popular character and he's done mm -hmm. so much already that automatically opens it all up. And he's so yeah. cool that people go, oh, if Musk's involved, then it must be a great thing. And that's honestly his greatest contribution to what we're doing. It's not the yeah. money, because the money can yeah. come from anyone. But the fact yeah. that he's standing behind this technology and he's saying, yes, this is the way forward, because of course mm -hmm. for him, for him, it's not just about Earth. I mean, yes, it solves the problem here on Earth, but it also solves his problem on Mars. Because mm -hmm. Mars will only be able to be habitable to humans if they deal with the CO2 problem. Yeah. So he's yeah. Uh, he's a very smart guy. He's a very smart yeah. guy. He's fully aware that this technology can change the future of the human race. So amazing. That to me is like a big turning point. Yeah.
Well, we've gone from saddlebags to <laughs> the air quality in Mars. I mean, how on, I've never done that in 38 minutes ever in my life. So well done, you. <laughs> That's just incredible. Listen, oh, it's just been fab. I knew it would be a great, great little story tell from you because you're just, you're just built for this kind of thing, you know. Um, it's been fabulous. And, and can how can our listeners get hold of you, Sarah? I know that you, they can find you on Clubhouse. Um, they can, Clubhouse. How else can they get hold of you? You can um, Instagram. We have Reclaim Mallorca is our Instagram. You can DM me on there or you can go to our website, reclaimsl.com. And from there, you can find my email address and send me an email. Or, yeah, or Clubhouse. Jump into a room with Warren and I on Clubhouse. It's always a lot of fun in there. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, listen, it's been amazing. Thank you. I knew it would be. And um, from myself and and everyone listening, it's just been an absolute delight. So thank you very much, Sarah. Lovely talking to you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Warren. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, that was my chat with Sarah there from Reclaim Mallorca. What a great example of creativity, vision and purpose and actually just getting stuff done. Um, Really enjoyed that, Sarah. Thank you for your time. It was an absolute pleasure. So don't forget, guys, you can always share these episodes. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts, hit the copy button and just share accordingly. That would help me out and obviously my guests. Next week, you'll hear my conversation with a guy called Justin Smith. We went from hairdressing to how he became a master milliner. I talked with Justin at length about his business and how he creates incredible hats for UK clients and some of Hollywood's A-listers. So join me next time for some more of the same. Until then, take care. I'll catch you soon. Behind the Brands was brought to you in association with beforestores.com. Go check it out. You can discover new brands, meet the makers and their products before they go into stores. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. We'd really appreciate your feedback. You can also subscribe for future episodes by tapping the follow button wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, keep learning, keep listening and keep creative.